Finance and Leadership, FTI's Financial Services Podcast. FTI is a global advisory firm. We help organizations manage change, mitigate risk, and resolve disputes. I'm your host, Tilsia Toledo. I have over 25 years of experience in the financial services industry. This show is about the people I've met along the way and leading during uncertain times. Please enjoy. Today's guest is Jeffrey Weaver. Jeff is Executive Vice President of Risk Management at KeyCorp. He is also a member of the Executive Council. Full bios of all guests are available at our website, financeandleadership.com. Please enjoy my conversation with Jeff Weaver. Jeff Weaver, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you, Tilsia. Thanks for having me. So Jeff, uh, one of the main reasons why I wanted to make sure I had you on is because I remember when I started my career in financial services, I've been at it now for 25 years and you were already in it. You definitely have had that longevity. Tell us a little bit about what is it like and what did you do? How did you think about it in terms of not just surviving, but thriving in this industry that has a lot of bumps and turns and can feel like a roller coaster sometimes. So thanks for that reference. I think it suggests that I've been around for a while as opposed to that I'm old. In either regard, let's say this. One not only survived, but thrives, I think, in financial services by solving the problems of the moment. I once got some advice from someone who I'd like to think of as a mentor who went on to become a CEO of another financial service company. As he departed Key, he said, Jeff, use your limited quantitative skills to solve the problem of the moment and you will thrive. So that actually caught me by surprise because I said embedded in that, is there some compliment, limited quantitative skills? Um, (laughs) Or is it some sort of astute direction? And this person was quite dynamic and talented and analytical as it relates to quantitative risk analytics. But what there was really was direction in terms of how to stay relevant. If you think about the moment he's referencing, in financial services, there's always some new mandate. There's always some regulatory matter. There's always evolution in products. There's always a new goal as relates to how your client might engage your company or might need to have a problem resolved. If you are customer-centric and if you are an advocate of your client, if you are astute and listening to the cadence of your organization, if you are really staying relevant to the priorities of the company, and using your skills, whatever they might be, to be accretive to the effort to resolve a problem, to advocate for the issues of your client, to help your company achieve its goal or set a priority that is a stretch goal, you will remain relevant. I would say over the last 10 to 12 years in particular, I've made a living solving the problem of the moment. My mentor, as he exited, was astute in that regard, as opposed to the latest, greatest effort to, you know, sort of reinvent the wheel. Let's think about the current crisis we find ourselves in now as a result of the pandemic. Now, there was chaos. 
that ensued as a result of the onset of the global pandemic. And then there was a need for a change, a reimagination in the way we engage our client. That resulted in an acceleration, and some say, you know, five to 10 years acceleration in digital engagement, in the advancement of a digital strategy, and the way we do business. So those who were innovative and reacted to the moment have thrived. Those who clung to the traditional client engagement model, not so much. You see the point? No, I hear you. And I think what I really like about the advice that your mentor gave you is that there's also this element of simplicity, right? Because in financial services, things can get complex very, very quickly. And a lot of times it's about how do I simplify and how do I address a specific issue? And we also tend to think about impact, right? Because at the end of the day, we're very much focused on what the outcome is and the results. So you're thinking about how am I going to have impact right away? Mm -hmm. And so embedded in that, what I would like to describe astute guidance as opposed to rationale for grounding me in my own humility, again, those words, limited quantitative skills, <laughs> um, was this notion that you can't take yourself too seriously. True. There is this term we oftentimes overuse in financial services, subject matter expert. I run away from that. I have knowledge that might be useful in the context of whatever issue or problem we're trying to resolve, but I'm also well aware of the gaps in my knowledge. And I'm also well aware of when I need to phone a friend. And I think it's that acknowledgement that we all need to know what we do not know that keeps us from getting ourselves into situations where the complexity becomes overwhelming and then you fail. Jeff, I am in complete agreement. I talk all the time about the fact that success is a team sport, especially in the work that I do in the financial services industry as a consultant. I am clear about what my strengths are. And I'm also clear about who are the people that I need to team up with internally within my firm. And sometimes it's externally, right? I may team mm -hmm. up with a small business to really deliver the best results to the client. So I think the thought about how is success a team sport? Who do I join forces with to really solve complex problems? I, I think it's critical and I'm in complete agreement. Let's talk a little bit more about that. I know we continue to grow at FTI and we had to onboard a significant number of people during COVID. And some of those folks did not even come into an office environment, right? We shipped them their phone and their laptop and they got plugged in and connected right away. And we thought about different ways to make sure that they got to know the team. But there are things that you need to do to keep the culture going for people to really understand what it's like to work at a specific firm. A lot of the things that you've said, what, what I hear is that you care. Mm -hmm. You care about your employees, you care about your clients, you care. But there's also the fact that you're in a risk management situation, right? You're a risk management executive. And so you need to make sure that you're maintaining that culture of risk compliance. How do you make sure that you're ensuring that when people are working remotely, how do you ensure that when you are onboarding new folks who come from different places or who are coming straight out of school? Talk to me a little bit about that. Sure. What you're really talking about is the way we establish and maintain our risk culture. Yes. And our CEO, newly established 
as the CEO taking seat May 1st. So during, you know, the pandemic wow. is sort of a student of the notion that we are all risk managers. Banks are in the business of managing risks. So that message cascades down from the top, point number one. Point number two, in risk management, we use our sound judgment, experience with managing uncertainty to enable prudent growth. And that message from our chief risk officer is part of the message that any new employee gets. Point number three, we spend a fair amount of time on diversity and making sure that any employee who arrives recognizes that regardless of their tenure and their place in the hierarchy, their opinion matters. Personally, meritocracies in the purest sense of the word are hard to sustain, but it's the fundamental way I manage my team. So whether or not the, a great idea comes from an associate or from a 25-year vice president, if it's a good idea, we'll run with it. And that's extraordinarily motivating. A newly minted associate arriving out of business school or an analyst out of undergrad sees that their work matters right away. We also instill in them a sense of understanding as it relates to where their contributions fit in the pyramid of priorities. So the CEO and the board has set a risk appetite. There is a threshold of risk we're willing to take to achieve the financial goals. As a result of that, there's a series of priorities that are communicated by the CEO occasionally the CFO, around this notion of these are the things we need to do to achieve our profitability goals and to retain our focus on our moderate risk appetite. And then the risk leaders have a series of goals that ensure that we stay within our risk appetite based on a number of controls, based on how we support the business, and based on how we take risks. And then the folks who bring that to life understand how they contribute to the risk goals. So by the time we're done, whether I take a day off or two weeks off, everyone understands what they need to be doing to ensure the organization, the CEO, achieves his or her goals. That is what I described as a team regimentation. The other thing, though, I would mention is... We also try to instill an understanding in new associates, as well as those who've been here for a while, that we are a team of teams. Why is that important? It's because of what we pointed out when we started. The world has gotten extraordinarily complex. And as a result, while I mentioned regimentation before, you know, the, the complexity makes resolving problems, solving problems, a bit more difficult than when I got my advice from that mentor I referenced before. So there are instances where you need to engage smaller teams in what I would describe as scrums in an effort to be tactical, to be agile, and to be very responsive. For example, how do you maintain operations in the middle of a global pandemic? And so this team of teams means that it's not about you, it's about the team. 
and the team is focused on achieving the goal as I cascaded them up to the CEO. Now, does that sound like false precision? No, it's clarity. It's clarity of the shared vision. So Jeff, I'm hearing three things. I'm hearing tone at the top. I'm hearing the importance of communication up and down the chain and, and across and team of teams. And when you think about what separates a high performing team from the rest of the field, I'm curious if there's anything that recently you stopped doing or you started doing more of because of the current situation. Yeah. So for example, we talked a bit about how do you maintain a risk culture? How do you engage your teams during a situation when you cannot see them with the level of frequency you had prior to the onset of the pandemic? I have now instituted what I would describe, and I guess it's attributed in a book, Death by Meetings, a series of weekly meeting protocols that start with a daily check-in with my leadership team for 15 minutes where we are talking about the meetings we have for the course of the day. We're not getting into an enormous amount of strategy, but what we're doing is we're giving everyone on the call transparency around the meeting cadence of each individual over the course of the day. And that means that to the extent we have redundancy, to the extent we have questions that may create uncertainty or ambiguity as a result of the meeting, it can be highlighted as everyone gets an understanding of what everyone else is doing. It also results in a cadence that normally you would get in the office with little effort because you could see who was coming into my office. Right. Now you can't. And then what ends up happening is if there is a strategic issue created by a review of the calendars of each one of the folks on the call, then we have a slightly longer meeting that we call the day or later on in the week to resolve it. But we stay pure to our view that that 10 to 15 minute check-in is only about transparency as it relates to our activity. And you'd be amazed at how much clarity that may call out in question if there isn't understanding of what you're doing versus how it might resolve transparency issues that you had previously. So now my team has said, regardless of when we go back in the office, we're going to continue to do that because it eliminates so much ambiguity around our progress as it relates to achieving goals. It creates a sense of transparency that no team can maintain in perpetuity unless you do it. And now there are, we are more effective in follow-up on issues that matter. So that's something that we started doing, we're going to continue to do, and that we didn't do a lot of. The focus needs to be on simplicity. It all started with a task list to maintain engagement. And then what resulted also that I didn't talk about was a sense of community. Mm, because so now, thank you, and I appreciate that. So after I say good morning to my wife, the next conversation I have are with my leaders. And they've gotten used to that. We had a leader in my team recently rotate out of the group on, and join another business. One of the things she misses the most is that discussion. Because she now has to work twice as hard to get appreciation for what's happening in the other parts of her new group. Jeff, I think that's so important, right? That sense of community, that sense of belonging. And I want to talk a little bit about what it means for you to have been in this industry for so long, especially, you know, as a Black man, 
Let's talk about the elephant in the room. You know, we've seen the whole George Floyd situation at my firm. I know we had a lot of various different discussions. There are a lot of different initiatives that we're doing internally. There are a lot of things that I'm personally engaged in. Let's talk a little bit about diversity, belonging, inclusion, and what it means to lead in the financial services industry while Black. Sure. So I would make a comment that our humanity defines us. And we present that every day in the office. When we go home, it's it broadened based on our individual views and those and the values of our family. And then we are members of society. And in the office, we have policies, procedures, and practices, those norms, define how we engage with each other. And as time has progressed, they've been very focused on ensuring that we have an environment free of harassment, a safe place to work, a tolerant behavior, a workplace that sort of promotes inclusive practice. But what really defines us is who we interact with when we leave after work, when we shut the computer off. And it's been my view that part of the dilemma that results in me having to sort of think more thoughtfully about working while Black is in that after the computer is shut off or after we leave the building in the old days, the individual likely did not interact with anyone who didn't look like them. They didn't worship in the church or wherever they might worship with anyone who didn't look like them or think like them. And so consequently, we were expecting people to come back into the office and practice their craft in this sort of virtual mosaic, if you will, when they were relatively inexperienced at it outside the office. And so we as Black people, Black professionals, were coached to show up in the office almost in a race-neutral-like state. At the, the most difficult group within or subgroup within the Black race that was challenged by this were Black women. Because you reflect your culture, your practice, some of the norms and practices culturally of the African-American race in the case of the U.S. every day by the way you show up. Men wear suits, women wear dresses. Men go to the barbershop, women go to the beautician. As women progress in their career and age, you know, there's some physiological changes that occur that happen more so in Black women than in other races for a variety of reasons. It made it very difficult to blend in. Covering became the norm. And what's happened as a result of the social unrest, the awakening that occurred over the summer of 2020, because we were all sort of glued to our computers working and forced to watch some of the, the racial uh, inequity in action, the police brutality, the again, the social and civil sort of protests that took place was that we educated the world or re-educated and reminded the world that life in the U.S. outside the office is tough. And so there was finally a permission for the leaders in the office to acknowledge that life in the office might equally be tough. And so all of the racial inequities practice on a micro level came to light. And for hopefully more than a moment, empathy was created, allyship 
was promoted and allowed and a movement to right the wrong ensued. But you still had this group of black people, professionals, some of whom very high achieving, who were practicing what I would describe as sort of race neutral presentation in the office. And they were fatiguing and they were tired. For the first time, you saw very senior leaders who were black affirming all of the suffering of those in the streets, those in the neighborhoods of loved ones and saying, I'm tired. Now there was fertile ground because you had a scenario where everyone understood the degree of difficulty of our life and the consequence of systemic racism in our communities. So I'm all unapologetically black. And about 12 years ago, maybe 10, I made a decision that I was going to start bringing my authentic self to work every day. I think generally all of my white colleagues know where I stand on a variety of issues that are typically taboo in the office, not politics so much, but on where I stand as relates to how I engage people. And guess what? Consequently, I'm invited to the meeting after the meeting. Mm. I'm more part of informal dialogues. I'm actually consulted for my thoughts and views on certain ideas because I'm more transparent, I'm more authentic, and they trust me. I'm logical, I'm rational, and I'm no longer a conversation that's the byproduct of curiosity. But I have a unique situation in my office because of that. What's encouraging to me and hopeful is that so does everyone else as a result of what happened this summer. You know, that Jeff, I, I appreciate all those comments. And I think that it's such an interesting topic to talk about because I think I've had a similar journey from the standpoint of thinking about like, how do I want to show up? And I definitely can think about a lot of situations where you may feel like you have to wear a mask. And at some point, does get exhausting. It is tiring. And at some point it's like, well, wait a minute, like this is me. I have all the background and accolades and credentials and things like that. But also what makes me really good at what I do is that I am who I am. And I do believe that for me to do my very best work, I am my true authentic self. So that means that I'm a black woman, I'm an immigrant, I'm a New Yorker, I love tennis and I love golf. So I bring all these things to work. And I do agree that as people get to know you and as you open up to people about different things about you, that's how you build relationship and it is also how you build trust. I completely agree that it's so important to think about what it is that you're comfortable sharing because people may still not be comfortable sharing everything, right? And people may not be able to handle 100%. But you do need to think about what is it that I'm comfortable sharing and what am I willing to let people in on? What's interesting is that bankers and risk professionals by nature are extraordinarily analytical. And in 2019, I brought our soon-to-be enterprise CEO to training led by the Race Equity Institute in North Carolina, where we had a half day of groundwater training on racial equity or the lack thereof. And it presented a series of analytical-based observations around Black engagement in the U.S. It's not suggesting that other racial groups don't have it tough, but it's centered on, to keep it easy, white and Black except it was in reverse. 
black people were disenfranchised as a result of systemic racism by seven measures of the engagement of life and white people had an advantage as a result of privilege. And that was the, the thesis that was promoted and established as a result of the training. And I remember the ride back to the office after that training, a lot of silence for the first five to seven minutes, raw, unadulterated, confusion, silence, empathy, guilt, apprehension. And I remember saying, I apologize for giving you a little bit of a window into my life, but it changed the way our company thinks about opportunity, thinks about the way we sort of discuss and analyze mobility, and it changed the way we acknowledge the fact that microaggressions and micro-invalidations have made it difficult for African-Americans to thrive historically. And, you know, luckily, that CEO is also a personal friend, but I'm proud that he went through it. And our organization was profoundly impacted as a result of it. That sounds amazing. Uh, that sounds absolutely amazing. So, Jeff, tell me overall, what have you learned about yourself as a leader? Words matter. My shadow, we are all trained to lead humbly, to be servant leaders, to inspire and to support those who are in the trenches doing the work, but that I also need to acknowledge the fact that words matter. And so what I say and what I don't say has impact. So I've sort of begrudgingly embraced the notion that my views on a variety of topics from the way we think about risk-taking, from the way we treat each other as we're analyzing risks, from the way we articulate shared visions, from the way we promote inclusive environments. It starts with how we embrace the obligations that come along with that. And so I have to actually practice what I've suggested on this talk today every day. And I have to show up. I can't take a day away from humanity. I can't stop being someone who has an obligation because I can to make a day better and more impactful. So I'm no longer simply focused on all business. I'm also thinking about the constituents that rely on me doing what I've just said throughout this call. And in the past, I kind of really occasionally was apprehensive about that. No longer. I'm so energized. I'm so motivated. And I'm so optimistic about the way business can change for the foreseeable future, the way we do it, the way we support our clients, who's helpful in our effort to support our clients, the inclusive environment that makes the work product better, that makes our ability to create sustainable results more reliable. And I'm a part of it. So I feel like I can't run away from those obligations. I embrace them. And I'm actually, I think, doing what my mentor suggested, which is using my limited skills to solve the problem of the moment. So Jeff, I mean, you, you talked about the fact that you're not all business. And, uh, and I know that you're very active in the community doing a variety of different things. So let's talk about it a little bit. Tell me, what are you obsessed about? How are you spending your time outside of work? Let's let the audience in a little bit on that. 
Sure. So I grew up in the inner city in Boston in a working class neighborhood called Dorchester and was privileged to go to a six year private school. It's the oldest school in continuous existence in North America, the Roxbury Latin School. And the motto of that school was to prepare the students for public service. And but for that school, I'm not quite sure if you'd want to talk to me on a podcast. (laughs) But, um, and as a result of that good fortune, as well as the hard work and persistence of my parents, my mother specifically, who encouraged me to go, I feel blessed. And so I've lived my life by the old adage, biblical in nature, to whom much has been given, much is expected. So I've consequently sort of embraced that sense of guilt and obligation I feel to pay it forward. And so I probably have a more active community philanthropy portfolio than most of my colleagues in the organization. So I'm involved in a variety of things from my membership in the Executive Leadership Council, a Black affinity group, to me being on the board of the Musical Arts Association, the leadership organization for the Cleveland Orchestra, to me being on the board of the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center, Mm. an intervention group that focuses on sexual abuse for women and children, to me being a life member of the council at, at Cornell University, because they think my words might have influence, to me being a member of the local business club, the union club, because I have the ability to create an environment for business leaders in Cleveland. Lastly, my involvement in the Community Service Society of New York, an advocacy group for the poor and disenfranchised of New York City, owing to my 20 years in New York, that's focused on policy development, community outreach, and direct action as it relates to those who've been disenfranchised and who are poor. That's exhausting but it's also fulfilling. And my company permits that because we believe in helping communities thrive and also because they know it matters to me. Jeff, that is so amazing. It's so wonderful. I knew you were very active. I didn't realize how long the list was. (laughs) So thank you for sharing that. I, I, I know we're coming near the end of our time together. Is there anything I haven't touched on that you would like to share? I oftentimes am hit with the question, can you give me your secret? How did you get to where you are? By mentees, by students, by mid-career professionals who are trying, working, grinding to achieve. And what I oftentimes say is what I did to get here is going to be different from what you do because the bank, the organizations in which I grew up don't exist anymore. They're new organizations. So back to the guidance that I got, using whatever God gave me to solve problems is one way to do it. And then as you're doing it, expanding your network, you have a profound, deep, and helpful understanding of the problem. Because if you're able to frame it in a way that sort of demonstrates an astute understanding of the problem, in a way that people hadn't thought about it previously, then that's part of how you show up and your talent will be visible and transparent to others and you'll be rewarded with the opportunity. My latest greatest thing is I'm focused on the impact, 
potentially of climate change on financial stability. Now, you may think about my background. You may think about the things I just talked about. Why? Is it a problem? I'll let FTI think about that a bit. Oh, well, it's absolutely a problem. <laughs> and we definitely have, you know, several efforts around it and, and how we can support our clients in solving that problem. So, Jeff, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Tilsia. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email financeandleadership at fticonsulting.com. Join us next time for a conversation with Chris Cully, partner at Mayo Brown.